And we are back, and now we are honored to be joined in studio by one of a number of Republicans hoping for the chance to run against and potentially unseat U.S. Senator Dick Durbin. He'll be running next year for his fifth term in the United States Senate, but there are a number of Republicans hoping to be the one to bring him down, and one of them is from Springfield. He is a cancer surgeon making his first foray into politics as a Republican candidate for the United States Senate. Dr. Tom Tarter is in studio with us. And, Dr. Welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you, Jim. Really appreciate this. Uh, Before we get started, because you are new to the political scene, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners and let them know a little bit about your background? All right. Well, I am a urologist and a urological oncologist, meaning I deal with kidney cancer, bladder cancer, and prostate cancer. And I have worked in central Illinois for 24 years, first at the Carl Clinic, where I served on the Board of Governors of the uh, Clinic Association, then on the Board of Directors of a health insurance company that, that was their fully owned subsidiary, Health Alliance Medical Plans. And then I left that job after five years in order to join the faculty at the medical school here in Springfield. And after 10 years there, I joined what I consider to be the best cancer group in the state, which is uh, Cancer Care Specialists of Illinois. And our goal is to, and what we do, is to uh, deliver really uh, up-to-date modern cancer care to all the small communities throughout central and southern Illinois, including a federal grant that we have to enter people into cancer trials through the National Cancer Institute. But you're going to retire from that medical career later this year to focus on this run for the United States Senate, a first-time political candidate going up against someone who has won four statewide races, it seems like the very definition of an uphill climb. Why why are you doing this? Or insanity. Uh, Some, uh, well, this is not a hobby for me. Uh, this, I am, this is not a retirement plan at all. I'm actually retiring three years earlier than I had planned from a job that I love and that I'm good at doing. Um, I'm doing this because I am, I am concerned, deeply concerned about Democrat proposals for a single payer health care system. There was another report that came out in May other than the Mueller report, and that was the Congressional Budget Office report on a single-payer health care system in the United States. And after I read that report, it's just not very complimentary to uh, a, a system that I think is going to be good for this country. Uh, and so I'm willing to retire just to... There are problems. Healthcare polls number one for Americans, but I, I think there are sensible market solutions to those problems. Uh, let's start with the concept of single payer. Uh, if it, it may not be as good as what many of us have right now, but if you have nothing, would it not in fact be better? And uh, I know what some, at least uh, Joe Biden, I think, has talked about is is sort of a hybrid Medicare for all that is, you can opt in or opt out. There's a public option, as was initially talked about with Obamacare. Is a system like that workable? I'll keep my work-based insurance if I have it. Somebody else who doesn't have that opportunity would have the chance to to uh, plug into this Medicare for All system. I would be open to um, to allowing people to buy in. There has to be some cost sharing with this. When they say Medicare for All, it's not Medicare for All, Jim. It's uh, Medicare Part B requires a twenty percent cost sharing, a copay, or now this is done through uh, Medicare Advantage with insurance companies. A lot of people enjoy that. Now, there are 
29 million uninsured Americans under age 65. They don't qualify for Medicare. Most of them, more than 75%, are employed full-time. And most of those work for employers that do not provide insurance. An alternative plan would be uh, to let small businesses pool the risk to qualify for discounts and tax breaks that larger employers enjoy. That could be one part of the pro- one part of the solution. If a, but you see, people who make four hundred percent over the federal poverty level don't qualify for subsidies, and most of these people that are uninsured fit that definition. So, I wish they would buy insurance. I recommend these family medicine plans. It bypasses the government. It bypasses insurance. It's a direct payment. On a monthly basis, say $150 for a family of five to a primary care group to get all of the primary care needs. Now, they also need insurance for unusual expenses, you know, if, if they have a car accident or something like that. But these would be low-cost, high-deductible insurance plans. And I'm going to say it, and I'm going to say it again and again and again. Anybody with a pre-existing condition needs to qualify for these cheap insurance plans. Is is work-based insurance still viable in the 21st century? People change jobs more often than they used to. A lot of companies don't want to take this on. They don't, they don't want to deal with the bureaucracy of it all. It, is, is that a rational way to go about providing health care? You hit one of the many nails of health care on the head. Uh, people don't – one of the barriers to getting insurance is losing your job or changing your job. And they, they may want another job. They should be able to have the job that they want to get up in the morning and go do. So I'm open to some plan to help the people. It's a subsidized plan to help the people who make less than 400% of the federal poverty level. For the others, I think that small businesses need to pool, pool risk. I, th- I, I think that um, family membership plans should should expand uh, in a more free market. But, you know, there's another problem, and, you're, and, you're, and you almost touched on it. And that is that I think we need transparency in both pricing and outcomes, because we don't have that now. Insurance companies aren't going to want to hear my plan. I've been on the board of directors of an insurance company. But the deals that are made between insurance companies and large physician groups, managed care plans, hospital systems, these are carefully guarded secrets. So the customer, which is usually a union or an employer, they, they don't know what they're getting for their health care dollars. And here's a prime example. The CBO report showed that within a single city, a single surgical procedure the price of that could vary by 400% of Medicare fee-for-service. Why is that? That's not right. You know, I think this could be legislated, that you have to show the prices, but not just that, the outcomes, so that the customers, the unions, the employers, individuals, can know what they're getting for their health care dollars. They should know that. Knowing what I'm paying for still doesn't necessarily mean I can afford it, though. Healthcare is just expensive in this country. Uh, you're going to be retiring here in a few months, having, I'm guessing, made a pretty good living at, at what you've done for very important, difficult work that, that you have done. Uh, but how do we bring down the cost of healthcare while still allowing 
a skilled surgeon like you to make uh, to make a living and to make it worth your while for all you had to invest in your own education. How do we do all that and bring those costs down? Well, I am <laughs> I am still paying off my student loans. Wow. Uh, I had a very short. Uh, clinical career. Most of my career was research, and my clinical c- career only spanned 24 years. Spanned 24 years. So, uh, I have mortgage. I have car payments. I've got kids in college. So, I'm going to be on a fixed income after this. And at some point, I would like to actually retire, <laughs> because if if the Senate run doesn't work out, and I can't think that way. Uh, I'll get a job again because that's where I am. Uh, we're basically a middle class family, uh, and I grew up. I grew up with a single working parent. I grew up poor, so I know what that means. Um, I I think, like I said, there are ways that we can bring the cost of healthcare down, and I think the cost of healthcare will decrease once we have more. Not less, but more of an open market. Let's contrast this with a single-payer plan. Americans have an appetite for health care services. They just do. We spend 17.5% of our GDP on health care. That's way too high. It's the third highest in the world. So we don't need to do that. Um, we need to make health care more market-based, but compared to a single-payer plan, when you make something that is perceived as free or nearly free, the demand for that service goes way up. When California expanded Medicaid, it was supposed to put everybody in primary care offices. They were supposed to get their annual health maintenance. But emergency room visits went up 20% across the state of California, and that's very expensive. So as the demand for services increases, and this is pointed out in the CBO report, then the only way to control health care expenditures is either to decrease the services, that means less services will be approved, and that's what we call rationing, or you have to decrease reimbursements. And uh, doctors like me have been dealing with decreased reimbursement for decades. So doctors typically today are working many more hours than they used to. So that's going to lead to a loss of providers, rationing of care, long wait times. We already have a physician shortage. So we're going to have, by some estimates, I don't know what the exact, these are estimates, nobody knows precisely, but you're going to see a loss of providers in a setting where we already have a, lo- a shortage. In my, in my specialty, we're going to have a 41% shortage by 2025. When you say market-based, though, uh, if I go out to buy a car, uh, I, I can't go out and buy a forty or $50,000 car tomorrow. I can't afford it. Mm-hmm. I'll get a you know $15,000 car with a lot less bells and whistles, and that's fine. I don't necessarily want to have to do that for my kidney cancer surgery, though. I don't necessarily want to have to get the bargain basement version of it. So... How, how do we do this so that everybody has a fair shake at getting top-quality treatment? I agree with you. So what do people in developed countries do? Um, developed countries with single-payer systems. No country really is totally single-payer, but for, there are some countries that are more or less that way. 60,000 Canadians come across to the United States every year to purchase health care services, either an MRI. These are the wealthy people. 
You know, Dick Durbin says I don't, insurance shouldn't just be for, or not insurance, but health care shouldn't just be for the wealthy. It's a right. It should be for everybody. And I agree with that. I've never turned down a patient for an inability to pay. And we often pay through the emergency departments, and then the specialty services get involved after that. Um, in India, their medical travel industry by 2020 will be a $9 billion industry. So the wealthy are going to take their health care dollars where they get value. They have Blue Shield identified five hospitals in Mexico that have excellent outcomes, and they will send their patients there for procedures and bring them back because it's cheaper for them than dealing with their own hospital systems in California. And that's because nothing is transparent. We don't know what the outcomes are for the healthcare dollar. Once we do, then we can then we can control our own healthcare. We're talking with Dr. Tom Tartar, Republican candidate for the United States Senate. Uh, and in his remarks yesterday before the Republican State Central Committee, he focused on two major issues. We've been talking about health care. We want to move now to immigration. And um, uh, again, another sweeping and complex area to discuss. But in if you can boil this down, uh, what what is your approach to immigration versus what you see as Senator Durbin's approach to the issue? I don't think a comprehensive immigration bill is sensible at this point. One didn't pass in 2007 with a Republican administration, and one didn't pass in 2013 with a Democrat administration. But we have to do something about our immigration laws. Nobody likes to see the, uh, the horrific suffering at our border. You know, it's a, it's a national embarrassment. And... Um, I think we do need to revise our laws to head that off. And frankly, Congress has known of this impending crisis for 20 years. And Senator Durbin has been in the Congress or in the Senate for 24 of those years, for 24 years, I should say. So I would, what, what, what's my approach? My approach would be to break up all the things we need to do into bills that would either pass or fail on their own merits. I don't care if it's a thousand two-page bills, but in my opinion, it could be four sensible bills. One would be a border security bill, which in fact would include aid to the countries where the, where the people are fleeing. I don't think the aid can be a blank check. I think it has to be very targeted. And I don't think an administrative state of, I think Congress needs to directly know where that money is going and what the results of the investment are. Uh, it, you can have you can have the professional bureaucrats in the federal government report back. You know, I don't expect every senator to be down there uh, for every dollar that's spent, but you really should precisely target this money to make those countries safer and to help the citizens so that they don't want to leave their homeland. I think that's terrible. I'm going to interrupt you for one second because we only have about two minutes left until news. I love okay. the fact that we're getting into some detail on this because okay. I think it's important, and sometimes we do this in a very sort of superficial way. Would you have time to stick around past the uh, the news? I would love uh, Come to. back at about 440, and we'll carry on the conversation after that because I really do want to get into some more detail on this. You mentioned, though, you could boil us down into, into four bills. Four. You talked about border security. Border what security, would be number two? The other one would be uh, illegal immigration, um, illegal border crossings, and asylum claims. Uh, the third one would be uh, legal immigration. 
And the fourth one is going to be the elephant in the room, and that's the dreamers. Let's let's tackle that last one real quickly here, and and we may have to you know go longer on that. But what would you do for the dreamers? They're here in this country, not of their own volition, not of their own fault, but they are here. Would you give them a path to citizenship? Yes. This is where I differ from the uh, more conservative members of my party. Uh, but I have talked to a lot of Republicans, you know, average people like me, you know, when we're golfing, we talk about this. And they agree. They all agree that they came as children, that, that they didn't come of their own will. And, you know, they have grown up. This is the only country they know. And I'm a dad of, of boys who were brought to this country from Russia as infants. And I can't imagine sending my kids back to a country where they don't speak the language or know the culture. So, yes, I would, I would make them, give them legal resident status. There's a lot of conditions, um, you know, if they're committed felonies or they're in prison for a long prison term, things like that. But for the 900 who served in the U.S. military, I would expedite their pathway to citizenship. Uh, we've had, uh, I think, a very good conversation going on about some of these key issues in the race, uh, so much so that I want to dig a little bit more deeply into them. And so we've been uh, talking about immigration. And, and Dr. Tartar, you, you mentioned uh, several ideas that you have on enhancing border security, taking care of the dreamers. But then you mentioned illegal and legal immigration. And I'd like to start with legal immigration, if we could, uh, very much in the news this week with some of the statements from the Trump administration, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, uh, saying that uh, he he interprets the uh, inscription of the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, who can stand on their own two feet, uh, and suggesting that that uh, poem really applies to immigrants coming in from Europe, not necessarily from other places. And people have really questioned what this means about the Trump administration's uh, approach to this issue, and particularly this notion that uh, people who come here uh, and may need public assistance of some sort uh, should then no longer be be eligible for green cards. What are your thoughts on the administration's approach to this issue? Uh, what would you do differently, or what would you seek to, to codify in law on this issue? Well, I, the the current law that we're um, under right now is 24 years old. That's when the immigrant, you know, the last immigration bill passed, the Comprehensive Immigration Bill. Legal immigration. I mean, there's only one group, one demographic group in America that can't look back on their ancestry, and that is the African-American community. You know, what would they say about who should be invited into the American family? You know, all of us can look back at, at something in our, you know, our ancestors came from here, they came from there. Even Native Americans know something about their tribal history, you know, because that has been really kept by them. But America is the only country that African Americans have ever known. What would they say about who should be invited into the American family? You know, I I think that I, I can't speak for the African-American community. I can try to project myself into that. And I would think I would say, let's take care of this community, okay? Let's bring people in who have some skills that we don't have to, we don't have to pay for their public assistance. Um, and that all has to do with with developing 
the next generation of Americans, Americans who are who are going to, well, you, everybody doesn't have to have a college education for sure, but they have to have a desire to have a skill, to be self-sufficient, to contribute to their community. They should, in fact, speak English, I believe. Um, it is a common language. Um, but as we've talked about uh, in, in the last half hour on the, the, the challenges that Americans, native-born Americans, face with health care, somebody who emigrates to this country and then may find themselves with a, a medical emergency or may find themselves with a job that doesn't provide adequate insurance and they may need assistance there, should that disqualify them from getting a green card? No, I don't think so. You know, of course, we're very compassionate people. You know, as long as they are trying to get a job, if if they fell on bad luck, we'll help them with that. You know, I think that that's normal. Um, but if you have an overwhelming number of people that are here who are not getting work or don't have the skills to get the work, uh, we need to help them get the work. Okay. Should we... Uh, restrict restrict quotas uh, more so than what we're already doing as far as where immigrants come from? Should we be focusing more on immigrants from Europe and less from Central America? No, I don't think so. I I think we shouldn't restrict immigrants from anywhere in the world. Um, You know, the travel ban will end at some point. Uh, and my understanding of the travel ban is that we couldn't vet people because we had no embassy and they didn't have a functioning government in order to vet these people. But we should have immigrants from those countries, too. We should have immigrants from every country. But what I don't like are the caps. Every country is capped at 7%. 7% from here, 7% from there. Why? It's just so artificial. But that's the old system. So if you, you know, let's say you have... Let's say the nuclear energy industry suddenly <laughs> revives, and it's the cleanest form of energy that we have as long as Iron Mountain opens up again. Um, if, if you have 30 engineers from Somalia, <laughs> it's not unlikely, but let's say that you have 30 highly qualified nuclear engineers. I would want them to immigrate here. I, you know, we need, we need to fill our country's needs. Uh, and some of those are going to be labor needs. Some of those are going to be um, more highly skilled and and people with higher education. So what would you change in the law right now to, to reach those outcomes? Well, I would get rid of the country caps for sure. Okay. I would get rid of the lottery system. I don't think that makes much sense. Um, and I, make it a merit-based system I would based m- upon skills, I, education, that sort of thing? I, I would make it merit-based, but it do- merit doesn't mean uh, – it doesn't mean you have to have any form of education because, you know, you may immigrate without an ed- education, but you have a skill. Um, or you may be enrolled in a school to get a skill. Or you may have a job, you know, and, and the employer really wants you here. And you have a sponsor in this country. My father-in-law immigrated. Uh, he didn't have a skill. He, uh, but he had his family sponsor them, and he worked since the day he arrived and— he never had a formal education, but he turned out to be quite a successful businessman and um, joined the U.S. Army and, you know. 
to illegal immigration, uh, and we've seen some uh, efforts there to change how we have done that in in recent decades, including much greater limits on people's ability to come into the country to seek asylum, to cross the border and say, I'm here, I want asylum, help me, and we're really restricting that now. Is that the correct approach? What would you do to try to to stem that tide of illegal immigration across the border? Well, like I said, I think we need to to target our aid in the countries where all of this immigration is coming from, those, you know, El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua, and really work with those governments, um, really help them with their drug and crime problems, and hopefully, you know, turn things around enough that it's not just overwhelming Mexico and the United States. Um, But if people come in and they have an asylum claim, we're obligated to hear it. We just need more facilities. We've known that for a long, long time. Uh, we need uh, to treat everybody with dignity uh, and compassion. We need more judges. We need to adjudicate these claims. Um, Do we need a border wall? Only as part of a, of a modern security system that looks to the future. You, you've offered some positions here that strike me as being in contrast with what the Trump administration has has been doing on this issue. Is it going to be a challenge for you to run for this Republican nomination uh, with those kinds of contrasts? And if you do win the nomination, what's it going to mean for you to have Donald Trump at the top of your ticket next year? In terms of of what I've said, I don't think it contrasts greatly. The administration is obligated to follow the law. And uh, President Obama also followed the law and, in fact, deported more people through ICE than Donald Trump has. Um, So the administration's hands are tied in terms of the law. And the laws need to change. But they do want to change uh, the asylum procedures and don't want people coming across the border to claim asylum. And they do want to change the green card standard. So so there yeah. are some obvious contrasts there. Yeah. Well, I think it needs to be codified in law. And I think, uh, honestly, Jim, I think unless you have 60 Republican senators, I don't think those laws are going to change. Can now, you- having Trump at the top of the ticket, <laughs> I'm a surgeon. <laughs> and... Uh, people like my bedside manner, okay? Um, but what if I was the best surgeon in my field in the world and I had a terrible bedside manner? Would you still want me to do your surgery? If you're the best surgeon, mm-hmm. I, I, I would. Well, I happen to believe that Trump is probably the best president we've had in a long time. Um, I, I think that he, he has made us more secure um, more safe. I believe that the tax cuts were the right thing to do for the country. We'll see how it goes as we approach 2025. I'm hoping that the economy will continue to grow, that wages will continue to grow, that unemployment in every category, they, they always talk about the racial categories, but we're talking veterans, women, uh, people without a high school education, their way, their unemployment is the lowest ever recorded also. We want to continue on that path. Um, are the tariffs a good idea? Tariffs are never a good idea, but that ha- that is the one controversial area that actually has bipor- bipartisan support with, with respect to China. We're talking with Dr. Tom Tarter, Republican candidate for the United States Senate. Before I let you go, a couple of other uh, quick questions to ask you about. Guns. Do we need any changes in federal law? We've seen some uh, pretty stark uh, examples of mass gun violence here in the last couple of weeks in this country. Anything you would seek to do in Washington on that issue? I think the president is there. 
I think we're going to see um, registration uh, of firearms. I think we're going to have some restrictions on the types of firearms um, that can be purchased, uh, especially gun shows. You need to control uh, gun shows for sure. You you think the president's going to get behind yes. registration, yes. behind restricting certain types of assault weapons, for example? Uh, the 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 uh, the big clips. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so the hundred round magazines. Yeah, and, what, and, and you know, you... I'm 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 not a gun guy. Well, okay, so I'm I'm. I'm supportive of the Second Amendment right to to bear arms, but you're not allowed to bear an RPG. You're not allowed to bear a tank. So, you know, uh, guns need to be registered. Um, that that's going to be a controversial position in your party. And you talk of a gun registry, but they're already being registered. My my preference would be that they're registered through your local sheriff. You know, but I don't know that the local sheriff can control the gun shows. Um, abortion. You're, you're... I'm, I'm pro-life. Um, I'm Roman Catholic and I'm pro-life. And my kids were born in a country that has a very high abortion rate. Um, and they're beautiful kids. So um, I'm not going to scare anybody. These are state laws that I will support the Hyde Amendment at the federal level, but the federal government isn't going to change abortion laws. But I would ask the women, especially in the suburbs, I would say, can we have a conversation on when a when a human life becomes a legal human person? Can we have that conversation? Because, you know, I was alarmed, and I will... I will talk about Dick Durbin this time. I was kind of alarmed uh, when Ben Sass, the senator from the junior senator from Nebraska, put in a bill that was supposed to be a unanimous consent bill. You know, it's that if a child is born alive from a failed abortion attempt, we should save that child's life. And Dick Durbin, the whip, didn't want any yeses or nos to identify those Democrats, so they all voted present, which killed the bill. Now, it, it isn't a very common occurrence, but it does occur, and it's a very common-sense measure. I mean, if you want health care for all, how about the kid that was born alive? The abortion's over, so it's not restricting any, anybody's rights. And I thought that that was—I thought it was hideous, frankly. Um, should marijuana be legalized at the federal level? At the federal level, gosh, I don't know if that's even coming up, is it? Well, it, I, I guess it can if somebody puts a bill in uh, to that regard. Uh, but, I, but, I mean, we have an issue right now where we're going to have it legal here in Illinois. Right. But there's still a lot of federal uh, limitations on this. And, it, you know, in terms of banking laws, things like that, if that were taken off of the schedule of controlled substances at the federal level, it would make it a lot easier for whether it's medical marijuana or recreational marijuana. See, I'm not in favor of either. I, I, a frequent daily young user of marijuana is, is apt to have serious mental problems. Um, and that's, that's sort of like the alcoholic in a way. You know, a person who drinks a, a, a lot daily is going to have some health problems down the line. You know, I, I would... I would probably not favor a federal uh, 
law to legalize marijuana. The states are doing it. My home state of Oregon has done it for, for a long time now. I was offered some marijuana when I went back to my 40th college reunion, and I said, no, I, I, I don't want any – I don't want my mental faculties to be any uh, less sharp than they are right now. We are out of time. You've been very generous with yours today. If people would like to learn more about your candidacy, read about your policies, find out how to support your efforts here, how do they do so? Uh, well, they can go to my website. It's uh, tartarforsenate.com. Uh, there is contact information there. Uh, I also have a Facebook page. You can follow my campaign on Facebook. I answer every, well, at this point I do. <laughs> I answer every uh, reply. And Facebook's brand new to you, you said. And it's you... brand new. I've never had a Facebook page. I don't know what the opposition research is going to do. They'll just have to make stuff up. <laughs> T-A-R-T-E-R, tartarforsenate.com. Or again, uh, look for Dr. Tom Tartar's uh, campaign on Facebook. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate Thank it. You. Pleasure to meet you. And I'm sure we'll be talking uh, much more as the campaign goes on. And this is very good for me. You ask good, hard, tough questions.